0: This is The Ascending Life, with Pastor Josh Blevins of Grace Calvary Chapel.
1: You're right, Satan, I am weak and I am feeble, and I have a Bible that says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. I am weak, but I have a God who is not. I fail, but I have a God who doesn't know how to fail. God is for us who can be against us. So when the enemy attacks our lack of strength, we can simply agree and say, yes, we lack strength, but we have a God who is strong.
0: Did you know that as Christians, we have the ultimate weapon in our battles? In today's edition of The Ascending Life, Pastor Josh talks about how Christ is always with us. When we became Christians, the devil attacks us harder, but with Christ, no evil can stand against us. God will never give us a battle that we cannot win. He has already won. His death on the cross and resurrection three days later defeated Satan. The war has already been fought for us, so when the devil attacks, stand with the Lord. Now, here's Pastor Josh in the book of Nehemiah chapter 4 as he begins his message, Building and Battling.
1: Lord, we thank you for the truth contained in this book that we have, that you have inspired, that you have preserved, and that you have delivered to us. Lord, we ask that uh, the truth contained in it today would meet us right where we're at, equip us and strengthen us for the calling you've placed on our lives. And Lord, that you would give us a burden from you, as you did for Nehemiah, about those things that you would have us put our hands to. The work you would have us to do and the reality of the battles that ensue, the spiritual warfare that takes place as a result of following after you and doing your will. We pray, Lord, that you would do work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A little bit of a history leading up to where we find ourselves this morning in Nehemiah chapter 4. The children of Israel had been held captive in Babylon now for 70 years. It was a 70-year captivity where they were dispersed throughout the Babylonian Empire. And in a sense, part of that attempt was for them to lose a sense of their identity as God's people, for them to be consumed and acclimated to the Babylonian culture and forget their sense of who they are, who they were as God's chosen called But after 70 years, in 537 B.C., according to prophecy, Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, moved by the heart of God, issued a decree for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And two men by the name of Joshua and Zerubbabel, the governor and the high priest, took a remnant of 42,000 Jews who wanted to return to Jerusalem. And they made the long journey back with the help and the protection of God and some resources from the king to reestablish themselves in the promised land and to build again the temple of God, which would be the center point of worship, the worship of God's people in God's land. And they began to do the work and become overwhelmed with the difficulty of it. Joshua and Zerubbabel feel helpless and hopeless with the amount of work that's before them. So God sends a prophecy and encouragement through Zechariah where he says, look, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, These mountain, the mountain before you shall become a plain and they shall bring in that capstone with shouts of grace to it. And the work will be completed by God's faithfulness and God's power working through the people as they put their hands to the work. Well, the temple gets started, but then it gets paused because the people kind of forget about God's work and they go and they focus on all of their own stuff. They start to build their own houses. They start to make their own lives. And God's work gets paused for a season until God, through Haggai the prophet, says, it's time to get going again, people. It's time to come back and finish the work that God had started in the rebuilding of the temple. And so Ezra the scribe is sent, he arrives, he revives the work, he revives the passion for God's word and for purity, and the temple is completed. However, at this point, the walls of protection around the city still were in ruins from that Babylonian invasion. They were in rubbles and heaps of ruins lying around the city. And one day, one of the cupbearers of the king named Nehemiah, a Jew, saw a Jewish brother, Hanani, who was visiting back from Jerusalem. And he says, how are things going back at home? And he says, it's a mess the city of our father's graves lies in ruins and the walls are in shambles. And the minute Nehemiah hears that, God puts a divine burden on his heart and he begins to be distraught by the reality that the city is still lying in ruins to the point where it's showing on his face. He is discouraged and Now he's serving the king, and one thing you don't want to do to uh, the most powerful man on the earth is serve in his presence with a sad countenance on your face. Because if your sad countenance makes the king sad, then off with your head. And one day, the king looks at Nehemiah and says, Nehemiah, why so sad? Why do you look so discouraged? And Nehemiah, filled with the courage of the Holy Spirit, says, How can I be of good cheer? How can I be happy? seeing that, that the city of my father's lies in ruins and its walls are in shambles. And the king, being in a good mood, perhaps because his wife was there that day, I don't know, that tends to help, help us men, um, he said, basically says, Nehemiah, just tell me what you want. Tell me what you need. And Nehemiah takes that opportunity to ask for the whole kit and caboodle. I mean, he just goes down the list and basically says, King, we just want you to provide everything. And the king does so. And so, with joy, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. He assesses the state of the city. He declares the good hand of God upon them. He encourages the people that are there and unites them together to start rebuilding the walls of protection against the center of worship there in Jerusalem. And I would just say this about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a book, a story, a true story, by the way, history, about God's work being done by God's people with God's resources in God's way and in God's time with God's protection. And here's the thing about God's work, whether it's a work that he's doing through your life or through our church or through the church in the world, that is wherever God begins a divine work, there follows that a spiritual battle. Warfare accompanies and follows the work of the Lord. The Bible says our adversary, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And anyone who decides, man, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to step out in faith and obey his commands, I'm going to believe by faith that God can do a work beyond myself, and I'm going to walk in it, will experience the same thing that Nehemiah and the people of God experienced, and that is the enemies of God coming against them, to try to discourage and intimidate them out of the work of God. You see, Nehemiah's job was so much bigger than just rebuilding a city, if that wasn't complicated enough within itself. When God's people returned to Jerusalem and just had a a, a temple, that was one thing. But once the wall started going up, it made a declaration to the enemies who were in the land. Why? Because for 70 years no presence of a kingdom there in Israel, which means all the other local nations and kingdoms saw that land for grabs. And they started to move and they had their own agendas for this little plot of property in the Middle East. And when those walls started coming up and the Jews who God promised that land to started coming back, it made a statement to God's enemies where God was saying through his people, not today. This is my land, this is my mountain, this is my city, these are my people, and you're not going to win. You're not gonna have your way here. And frankly, I see some parallels even today with the church. The enemy, which is the prince and the power of the air and his demonic forces, have an agenda for this world and for this nation. Do you agree? There are demonic forces ideas and philosophies and politics going around, planting division within the world, and Satan has a plan for this world. Wicked men, driven by their lust for power and control, have been seated in political realms and have intentions of erasing the memory of God, not only from our history as a nation, but also from our future. And I think what we're currently seeing over the COVID pandemic and over a year of ups and downs and radically insane things happening, seeming like every day, is we're seeing pockets all over this nation of the church coming together, of God gathering up the church to stand tall, to build walls of righteousness and truth in this nation. And God is telling the enemy, I don't think so. Right now, we are seeing before our eyes thousands of prayers over countless generations being answered in our midst. God is gathering His church together in places that are positioned to rebuild broken and weakened walls of the spiritual fabric of this nation, I believe. He has given people a mind to build, a united heart, divine protection and provision, supernatural resources. To establish his truth and righteousness, his love, and his gospel of hope and forgiveness right here, even in our community. You guys, I think we underestimate sometimes when we just show up at church and we check it off our list. I went to church this morning. I'm part of the church. I did my thing. That, no, we're actually, we are a remnant of God's people in this city that he has called to be a bulwark and a wall against the forward progression of Satan who wants this territory for himself. He has his own agenda, his own plans, and the church is the one entity, the one body in which God shines through us, basically telling the enemy, I don't think so. You have no ground here. You have no authority here. That's the church of Jesus Christ. Paul calls the Church of Jesus Christ the pillar and the ground of the truth. That's a powerful statement. We when we have God who is for us, and we have people who are willing to serve, leaders willing to take a stand, the Bible is perfectly clear. The Lord will not fail. It might be hard. It might require sacrifice. There will be moments when it feels like we're defeated and people who fall by the wayside. But in the end, the walls will be rebuilt and those who stand on the side of the Lord will have the final victorious battle cry. But here's a truth that I think we all need to invest into our hearts today as we look at this passage. That you cannot separate building from battles Or worship from warfare. If you're looking for the easy road, following Jesus is not the easy road. It is not the road of least resistance. It is the only road. It is the most rewarding road. It is the only road that matters in the end, in eternity. But it will be full of warfare. I think of what Paul said to the Corinthians when he was in Ephesus. He said, In 1 Corinthians 16, that a great and effective door has opened to me. So he's like, there's this amazing door that God's opened for ministry. And the very next thing he says, oh, and there are many adversaries. Of course there are. Because you don't get a work of the Lord without an enemy that tries to stop it. Warren Wearsby put it like this so simply. As soon as God starts to bless, the enemy starts to battle. And it's essential for us to know and understand his methods As Paul said, we are not unaware of his devices for us to press on and press through the plan that God has for each one of our lives. I want to look at three specific tactics of the enemy reflected in the attacks that Israel receives from its enemies while they attempt to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Don't get your hopes up. There's only three points, but they are very long. If you're taking notes, jot down this first one as we look here in verses one through three. The intimidation of the enemy. One of the first tactics the enemy takes against our lives and against the church is to intimidate us or to rattle us or to scare us out of serving Christ wholeheartedly. The intimidation of the enemy. Verse one tells us, but it so happened when Sandballat heard that they were, they were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant, and he mocked the Jews. We're going to be introduced in these first three verses, verses to two adversaries of, of Israel, Sanballat and Tobiah. We'll learn about who those guys are in a minute, but Sanballat was, in chapter 2, we learned that he was a Horonite, Horon was a local deity, an idol, so to speak. And Tobiah, he was an Ammonite, a bitter enemy of Israel from the descendants of Lot's daughters. So we have this tension here. These two guys who have a plan for this land that now is being retaken by God's people. And they are, notice, furious and indignant. Right, Their party is being rained upon. Things aren't going their way. So they're very indignant. And when I think of Sandballot and Tobiah, I think of two bullies. In fact, just coming off Christmas, you know who these two guys remind me of? They remind me, I don't know if anyone knows this or not, but that was a movie I was watching growing up. Got <laughs> Farkas, right, and his little sidekick. These are the bullies. This is Sandballot and Tobiah. These guys who just come to intimidate Israel. And notice, notice the word there the end of verse 1, that they mocked the Jews. See, the first thing the enemy tried to do was to embarrass the people out of the work, to try to make them think that what they were doing was so silly and insignificant, that they looked so ridiculous trying to do something of such great scale when they had nothing. Satan, by the way, I believe is the king of all trash talkers. He is a good mocker. He, he mocks and mocks and mocks. So do people. So do enemies of God. So do godless people who don't want God in their thinking or in their society. They do this. You know what they say, birds of a feather mock together. They do. And they always have and they always will. I, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, there's an effort going on out there. But critics always like to find other critics who will assist them in criticizing the work of God. They love to find other people that agree with them because they feel justified. And Now, there's a time and place for righteous, godly criticism. That's not what we're talking about. Here we see mocking being used as a tool to intimidate and discourage God's people. You know, it's been said that some people will stand bravely when they're shot at and collapse when they're laughed at. And it's true. The thought of my peers, of my coworkers, of people around me thinking certain things about me because I associate with Jesus or I stand for the truth that's in his word as it says, even if it goes against the cultural flow of the day, or I'm gonna do something that seems crazy to everyone else, but I don't think it's crazy because I think God asked me to do it. The thought of people's responses often cause Christians to kind of shrink back And to be afraid. And notice the tactic here of mocking, verse 2. Verse 2 records six different areas in which the enemy tries to intimidate the people of God. And it's in the form of questions. Verse 2, and he, that is Sanballat, spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria. So by the way, if you really want to discourage someone, do it on a public forum where everyone else can hear you. Notice the armies there, they all hear, everyone's getting planted seeds of discouragement. And here's what he said. Number one, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, the stones that are burned? Now, I know a lot in one verse, but notice six, six areas where the enemy specifically tries to intimidate the people of God. Jot them down. Number one, he tries to intimidate their lack of strength. Notice the adjective he uses. What are these feeble Jews doing? The the word in the Hebrew means to tremble or to shake with weakness. Like you don't have the strength in your legs to hold you up. You're just barely hanging on. And here is what the, the attempt was. You guys think that you are going to rebuild a wall? Have you looked at yourself in the mirror lately? You're weak. You're frail. You're a bunch of ragtag group that's been in captivity. You don't have the resources. You don't have the manpower. You're weak, and you think you're going to rebuild a wall that's going to fortify yourself against the attacks of enemies that are going to come against you? You're so feeble. And the attempt was to try to get the Jews to look at themselves in the mirror and go, yeah, What are we trying to do? We can't do this. Look at us. We're just a bunch of feeble Jews. In many ways, this was a true statement. And I have found that you and I will experience this very thing when we try to step out in faith to do something for the Lord. The enemy always puts doubts before us and insecurities before us. Have you noticed that? You hear, if if you've ever taken a step to do something for the Lord, whether it be small or great, you've heard this voice in your heart and in your mind. Who are you anyway? You don't have the resources or the talents to accomplish that. What you're trying to do is impossible. Do you know how foolish you look right now? But here's the good news about the enemy's accusation of our weakness is that this is actually one thing we can actually agree with when the enemy says, you are weak. Don't you love that? Because when the enemy looks at you and I, or this church, says, what on earth are you thinking? What can you accomplish, you feeble, you weak person? You're a nobody. We can look straight back at him and say, you know what? You're right, Satan. I am a nobody, You're right, Satan, I am weak, and I am feeble, and I have a Bible that says my strength is made perfect in weakness. I am weak, but I have a God who is not. I fail, but I have a God who doesn't know how to fail. God is for us who can be against us. So when the enemy attacks our lack of strength, we can simply agree and say, yes, we lack strength, but we have a God who is strong. Paul, in recognizing his own weakness in 2 Corinthians 12, was talking to the Lord about this thorn in his flesh, and God responded to him and said, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul therefore says, I will gladly boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It was an opportunity for for them to say, we boast in the fact that we don't have Anything the world would say that we need to accomplish this because then we can show off the power of our God. God loves to show off his strength through the frailty and the weakness of his people. Number two, he attacks their defenses. He attacks their defenses. Notice he asks the question, will they fortify? Will they fortify? In other words, are they going to build walls up to protect them against the power and might of our armies? Will they fortify? You have to understand the people who returned from exile were not necessarily the most skilled artisans and craftsmen. When Solomon built the first temple, he had thousands of carpenters, stone workers, and skilled craftsmen in his city. Nehemiah had sort of a a remnant of people who, some historians say they were mostly Tradespeople, perfumers, women and children, and common people, how would they know how to structurally engineer walls and build up walls that would be strong enough to last or to stand against an attack? And I think the enemy loves to ridicule our methods of defense, he wants to mock our attempts to do battle against him and against our flesh.
0: You've just been listening to another edition of The Ascending Life with Pastor Josh Blevins. If this is the first time you've tuned in to this broadcast, we want you to know that we're a ministry based out of Grace Calvary in St. Joseph, Missouri. This radio program wouldn't be possible without our faithful listeners' support. we love to hear that our listeners are praying for this ministry and are grateful for those who feel led to give financially as well. Would you consider giving to this ministry? If so, Simply go to TheAscendingLife.com, find the About tab, click on Grace Calvary, and then look for the Give link at the top of the page. If you're interested in getting to know us a little better, you'll be able to access more information about our church as well. TheAscendingLife.com is where you need to go. You can watch us online via Facebook. Just search for Grace Calvary Chapel. Going back to our website, you can listen to a variety of teachings that Pastor Josh has given, as well as find a way to submit a prayer request. That's all at theascendinglife.com. We look forward to hearing from you. We trust that this message has met you right where you are and that God will use it to awaken you to the love, truth, and power of God. May you go about the rest of the day with that at the forefront of your mind. From all of us here on the production team, thank you for listening. We hope you'll come back again for another broadcast of The Ascending Life.
1: This